I don't think it's any secret in the Christian faith that the believer needs the Word of God. He needs it desperately. He becomes embittered toward others when he doesn't have it. He becomes malnourished when something replaces it. He finds himself longing for things that are not worth longing for when he does not long for the Word of God. He becomes idolatrous. He becomes so focused on things that are matters of preference and things that are deeply secondary, tertiary, maybe even unimportant. They become a passion for him because his passion for the Word of God, it's absent. So he needs the Word. If he's in Christ, he knows he needs the Word. He wants to want the Word. He desires to desire the Word. And yet he finds himself not in the Word. And so he wonders, why is it that there are those who are in the Word and I'm not? Why is it that I don't have a hunger for the Word of God that I know I should? Why is it that that hunger that, that once enraptured me is absent? How is that? How does that happen? How can I overcome it? That's really the better question, right? It's one thing to kind of nail down the issue as to why something became a problem, but it's quite another thing to become proactive about overcoming the problem. That's really what we want to accomplish this morning. I'm certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that you, like me, whether you are in a period right now, will have at some point in your life have been and certainly will be in the future in a point of dryness. A disinterest in the Word of God, it will happen. If you're not in that phase, that chapter, that discouraging disposition right now, you can rest assured that there will be at least flashing moments of idolatrous interest in other things that completely destroys your interest in the Word of God, at least temporarily. So I want to help you. I want this to be a help to me. I want us to grow. And this really is the idea in this text this morning. This is a powerful, powerful text of scripture all scripture is powerful but this in particular is like a rifle shot to the heart removing the sinful barriers that destroy your appetite for truth if you will crave the word of God you will grow spiritually and you say I want to crave the word of God I crave craving the word of God but I don't crave it this will help this is your solution I hope you will listen diligently and faithfully and passionately. Our text reads this way this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." If you are to grow spiritually, point number one, you must cast off your sin. If you're to grow spiritually, you must cast off your sin. Peter uses this term, putting aside. This is what you think it is. It's putting away. It's stopping. It's taking off and laying down. It's a disrobing. It is a stripping of what you have been wearing. It is a deliberate effort to remove and abandon particular sin. And then Peter, as you know, is very careful to use particular terms, right? He doesn't just say, oh, you know, just stop sinning. Now, that wouldn't be a bad thing to say. That's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. I think a lot of times we emphasize the fact that Jesus was so gracious to that woman, prevented her from being stoned to death. But what was the command to her? It was a very generic, stop sinning. That was the command. Go and sin no more. Not just encouraging her, but communicating to her that there was the ability to not sin. And then Peter, as you know, is very careful to use particular terms. He starts with this term, malice. This is a word that should bowl you over. It should knock you down. It should knock you out of your chair and cause you to do a few somersaults. When you think of the reality that this not only finds its way into our hearts, but finds corners and pockets that are hidden, Peter's command here is to do away with it, it's to abandon it, to drag it into the light and execute it, lop its head off. He says all malice. He uses that term all three times in this text. And so three times he points to the reality that 
this isn't something that you just do once and you're done with it. Oh, I'm so glad I don't sin anymore. This is a proactive, consistent, long-term, lifetime effort to put this away, and it requires that. Malice is a horrible, horrible reality of the human heart. It's a death wish on others. Malice is that which is not exposed so well as other sins. And as Peter unfolds these other sins, I think you will see why he focuses on those having started with this one. Malice is so well hidden. It's deadly. It's murderous. It's hateful. The term itself is a derivative of the Greek word that simply means bad. It's the most generic Greek term for bad, and malice is derived from that term. It really means wickedness. But it also has to do with evil in a moral sense. In other words, it has to do with a morality that rests in badness, a belief system that is derived from a wicked foundation. It's wickedness in the heart. It's hateful feelings. He says root it out. You can't root it out unless you dig it up. Kill it. It's treacherous. It's deadly. And then he says, and all deceit. And deceit, as you probably know, is different from basic dishonesty. Deceit is slyness. It's trickery. Another term that a Greek lexicon uses to describe this term is bait. It draws in the potential captive in such a way that convinces him that one thing is on the forefront when quite another is behind the curtain. This is treachery as well. It's fraud, really. And as I said, it's different from basic dishonesty. The, the idea with this person who is committed to deceit is that he carefully chooses his words so as to never be held accountable for what he actually meant. He has developed the skill of avoiding the question being asked, but answering in a way so as to convince others that he has actually been honest. This is a different Mindset from simple dishonesty. It is skillfully masked dishonesty. If you were to say to your young child, did you brush your teeth? And his mind, he's thinking, yeah, last week, and says, yes. In his mind, he has done what is necessary for you to be satisfied with the answer, but he has deceived you. He doesn't answer with details because he knows he'll be held accountable for details. So when asked how things are going, someone might respond, oh great, or they could be better. Very generic, ambiguous terms, not really dealing with the answer to the question. Here's a good example. Someone says to you, are you spending time in God's word? Instead of saying no, you might say, well, not as much as I should. It's crafted dishonesty. It's quite different from just bold-faced lies with a disinterest in whether or not the person is persuaded. It's crafty. Peter goes on to this term hypocrisy, and it's pretense. It's insincerity. It really originated with the person who was a play actor. He was a hypocrite if he was a good actor. It's become... A negative term uh, since then, and right, rightfully so, not that play acting is bad, nothing wrong with that if you're doing it in the proper context, but the person who play acts in his life, the, the regular practice of his life is to communicate one thing and then communicate another with equal emphasis in different venues. This is generally used for flattery. You know, the person who walks into the, the church building says, well, good morning, how are you? Love to see you. Wonderful to have you here. And turns to her husband and says, I hate her. <laughs> Did you see how she looked at me? That you're presenting yourself in one way when really your heart attitude is quite different. Peter says, do away with it. Kill it. 
end it. Stop it. Psalm 12, verse, verses 1 through 6, give us some narrative insight to this. The heart of the psalmist goes like this. Help, Lord. Do you love how he starts? That's how you and I start sometimes, isn't it, when we pray? Help, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord, because my heart is full of malice. I'm a hypocrite. I'm dishonest, deceptively, Lord. Help me. The heart of the psalmist says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. Maybe you've felt that way in the past. You've felt as though your desire is to honor the Lord. It's to grow. And you can't find others who will assist you in that. You can't find a body of people who are desirous of that themselves that that they would be so desirous of that that they could actually be helpful to you in doing that. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that speaks great things. Who have said with our tongue we prevail? Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. This well fits the context of our passage this morning. The person who would see the word of God as silver that's refined seven times, the dross is removed. If he drinks deeply from the word of God, then he will be nourished, he'll be strengthened. He will find others who have that same desire. But if he allows hypocrisy, flattery to be the focus of his heart, if he is interested only in saying things to people that he believes they hope to hear so as to gain greater favor with them, that will stymie his interest in the word of God. But the Lord says, I will restore those who genuinely desire the word, and I will bring to them others who will assist them in that. Peter goes on here and uses a different term. It's really very similar to the term jealousy, but it's more than jealousy. The word here is envy, and it is spiteful jealousy. It's one thing to be jealous. It's another thing to cultivate jealousy, to, to wriggle in jealousy, to bask in jealousy, to become envious. You know the phrase, he's green with envy. He's so envious, you can see it on his face. This envy is not just simply an inappropriate interest in someone else's position or possessions, but it is a wicked disposition toward the person. It's hateful. And and Peter says, put it away. Put it away. You see, if you're to grow spiritually, you must cast off your sin. Your sin... My sin, work as an impedance, a roadblock, a blockade against not only spiritual growth in and of itself, but that which leads to spiritual growth. These things prevent a spiritual hunger for the Word of God. Peter says then, and all slander. What is slander? This one's pretty easy to define. It's hateful speech. It's true hate speech. It's saying things about someone that you certainly would not say in their presence if you desired their favor. The old term is backbiting. It's the right term, backbiting. I remember the first time I heard this term, I was a freshman in college. I was completely brand new to spiritual things, and a girl accused me of backbiting. And I said, um... Could you explain that term? I've never heard that before. She said, well, it's like biting someone in the back. They don't know that you're doing it. And I think she herself was beginning to really understand the true purpose and meaning of that word. And this is what slander is. It's like doing damage to someone behind them in such a way that they don't know who's doing it. But it's certainly having an impact on them. So Peter says, do away with all these things. Be done with them. Separate yourself from them. Execute them. And he uses the term all 
three times. D. Edmund Hebert says, The repeated all leaves no room for exceptions in the demand for holiness. The classic 17th century Puritan writer John Owen says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Specifically, your sin will kill your interest in that which results in spiritual growth. Maintain a devotion to any one of these spiritual attitudes, these evil, wicked mindsets, and you will prevent your interest in the food of the Word of God that leads to the growth that you desire. John Owen also said, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin. Now let me read to you that supportive clause again before I get to the point of John Owen's quote. John Owen sometimes is very heavy. We need to move slowly as we look at him. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. So those, it's simple really, those who are freed from the power of sin must work hard. They must make it their daily business to kill the indwelling power of sin. This is a daily practice. You've been frustrated with other believers and other believers have been frustrated with you with regard to this uh, frequent conversation. I just don't understand why I can't get any traction in this area of my life. And your loving, well-meaning brother or sister in Christ says, well, how much time are you spending in the Word? And that's a good question. But many times it bypasses the reality that your time in the Word is all for naught because you're harboring some bad attitude towards someone. And it prevents your spiritual growth and you are not useful to the church of Jesus Christ. It's a basic reality. Colossians chapter 3 is a parallel text with regard to this. Very helpful. And Paul here specifically is very clear about the fact that he's speaking to believers about their previous condition. Listen to what he says. Colossians 3 verse 5. He says, Therefore, and this is in light of the fact that you are resurrected with Christ, if you are. He says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and then this list of things, I'll give them to you in a minute. But here, your ESV, if you're using the ESV, actually translates this a little more accurately in terms of what the, uh, the idea is in Paul's mind. He says, put to death. Not just consider them dead. You see, in our vernacular, when we hear the, the, the term consider, what do we think of? We think contemplate. Think about it. Well, the ESV being a more recent translation uses more modern vernacular. In other words, the term that would best suit what Paul is trying to say here, because the term consider has evolved in our lifetimes. What Paul is saying here is believe it dead. Consider it dead, believe it dead. Believe them to be gone. Believe them to be a thing of the past. Make sure that they are. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You see that? You ever wonder why someone says, well, you know, it seems like your problem is idolatry. All they're doing is saying that that's the generic reality with regard to whatever sin you've got your claws into. It's an idol. Whatever it is, you're so obsessed with it. You're so focused on it that it's an idol. It has taken place of God in your heart. And many times, immorality, impurity, think of it, passion, Evil desire and greed are reflective of basic idolatry in the human heart. All of those things conjure up ideas of an obsession with something. Whether it's good or bad, it's not the issue. The idol is not where the evil resides. It's in the heart of the idolater. Paul goes on and says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. 
And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. You see, that's the past tense indicator. He's saying you not only did them, but they were you. They were part of your character. You not only walked in them, that's action, but you lived in them, that's character. So he's speaking of the reality that this is not you anymore, and yet you still have a problem. You still, as Paul indicates in Romans, carry around a dead spiritual corpse on your back. And you will. You will the rest of your life. So don't try to resurrect that dead corpse by stimulating the thoughts and the activities and the the mindsets that were once accustomed to you because that dead corpse was you. You have a new nature, and this is what Paul is indicating here in verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. He gets more specific now. He's talked about general or generic sin categories in in using uh, the terms impurity, passion, immorality, evil desire, greed. Now he gets very specific, and he says, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him you see you are being renewed to be in christ in that initial moment that rebirth that one experiences does not result in immediate change across the board you have a new and pure nature but you still have the residual unredeemed humanity called the flesh that you will be murdering the rest of your life should be dragging it into the light, taking its head off. Be vengeful, be passionate. If you're not vengeful and passionate with a true spirit-filled hunger for God's glory, then those things will remain in your life with impact and effectiveness. Hebert says, Before their craving for milk can be realized, there must be a definite break with all the evils that hinder spiritual growth. Before their craving for milk can be realized, because that's what's coming, right? This is the command. Crave the pure milk of the Word of God. That's the imperative in our text. This is what we really want to understand how to accomplish. But Peter is indicating, as D. Edmund Ebert is saying, that something must happen before that happens. You wonder why you're at odds with the same people over and over You wonder why someone's repetitious reminders of things in the Word gnaw at you and become irritating and annoying. They're saying the same things over and over and over, and it's increasingly annoying to you. You've developed a bad attitude toward that person and very likely toward the Word of God. I love how Hebert says it. There must be a definite break with all the evils that hinder spiritual growth. You see, when we harbor bad attitudes toward people, we think we're doing ourselves a favor in the moment. We're very deceived. It feels good to feel bad about someone else so I can feel better about me. But the reality is I'm the loser. I'm the one that loses. I'm the one that prevents my spiritual growth when I do that. Dwight L. Moody said, The Bible will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from the Bible. You see, there's this cyclical reality. There's a cycle in our lives where as you feed on your sinful internal tendencies, you no longer have an interest in the Word of God. But quite the opposite is true as well. As you kill that appetite, as you cut those things off for things that are not pleasing to the Lord, they're de-glorifying to the Lord, and they are preventive of your spiritual growth, you will hunger after that which is actually helpful to you. So point number two. Point number two. If you're going to grow spiritually, crave God's Word crave God's Word. You say, you know, I crave ice cream. That's easy. I don't have to work at that. I crave a really good steak. Uh, You know, you don't have to tell me to crave that. Right. And so that's why I wouldn't tell you to crave that because you don't need to be told. You need to be told, as do I, to crave the Word of God. You say, well, how do I do that? Because those cravings come naturally. It's easy. you got to work at it. 
Simply put, you've got to work at it. You've got to take this phrase, you've all heard it, let go, let God, and you've got to remove that from your vocabulary. You've got to remove the idea of letting go and letting God from your mindset. You must be involved in developing a craving for the right things. Now let me, let me tell you something that I would hope would be tremendously helpful at this point. Point number one from our text this morning is how you start. Cast off your sin. Putting aside. You want to crave the word of God? Do away with the things that destroy the craving. You want to long to crave nutritious food? Stop eating breakfast at Starbucks. Do away with the things that don't cultivate an interest, a desire, a craving for that which is nutritious. And pretty soon, as you feed yourself that which is nutritious, you're going to see a huge difference. You're going to see an increasing desire for that which is actually nutritional. So here in our text, Peter says, like newborn babies. Now don't forget the adjective newborn. Not just babies, because babies get desensitized to whatever. You know, you feed them the wrong stuff, and pretty soon that's what they want. But newborn babies long for one thing and one thing only. Well, in addition to air, of course. They long for pure milk. Isn't this amazingly helpful that the Lord would use Peter to give us an illustration to help us understand how we should crave Desire the Word of God. He illustrates it in a way that we all comprehend. So you wonder why you don't have an appetite for God's Word. Let me ask you this. Are you feeding on any combination of malice, deceit, Hypocrisy, envy, or slander. Yeah, I intentionally read those very slowly so that you and I would have time to think through the degree to which I might be devoted to any one of them to any degree. Any combination of those things. Meaning, only one or all or two or four. Is there any devotion? Are you feeding? Are you nurturing? Are you making provision for any one of those to any degree? Your spiritual growth has stopped. Be certain of it. You're harboring ill will toward anyone. You nestle with it. And you rest in it. You go to bed with it. You stew in it. You're cooked in it. You're transformed in it. And you hide it. And you're dying spiritually. If your spiritual belly is full of this worthless junk food, you'll have no room for spiritually nutritious sustenance. Worse still, you'll have no appetite for it. A baby raised on sugar water will naturally reject nutrition-packed milk as it doesn't have the same sweetness. A newborn has a natural need and thirst for his mother's milk. It's by design. It's God's design. His appetite is voracious and his pursuit is ravenous. He wants one thing and he wants it until his belly is stretched so tight that his mouth runneth over. He drinks, he slurps, he gasps, he sucks, he grabs, he clings. And if he misfires, he gets really mad. Until he gets what he wants. Give him a pacifier and he's temporarily deceived into thinking that he is on his way to belly-filling satisfaction. But it takes no more than three to five seconds for him to awaken to the intended deception and he is instead filled with rage that no mother enjoys but give him what he so desperately wants and so certainly needs. After the ravenous pursuit is complete, he retires unto a smile-laced disposition and mom can be happy. 
because baby is satisfied. But baby is not only satisfied temporarily with a full belly, but with an increasingly growing body. Growth will result. The baby is so accustomed to the practice of craving his mother's milk that even after his tummy is satiated, his lips and tongue are now happy to continue the motion. I think each of my children, uh, I have observed after being well fed, you know, falling asleep and still that sucking tongue lip thing that goes on and on and on for quite a while. Is this not true of the new Christian who, like an infant, when well cared for and well fed, thirsts so intensely for God's word and drinks so deeply that he becomes increasingly needful of it? You know this, his eyes are opened, his ears are opened. His heart is illumined. Truth now is seen as truth. He's eager for it. He longs for it. But what happens when a baby begins to sleep satisfied with a full belly? It turns out that he devoured his milk so rapidly that he ingested some air along the way. In his effort to be gratified, he gulped in not only the good stuff, but like a vacuum cleaner on the highest setting, he actually overfilled his tummy with hollow, space-stealing air. And not only is it not helpful, it's actually painful. The pain this produces results in his belly demanding that it be removed. So again, he cries for assistance. The baby who gasps and gulps drinks in more than just that which is nutritious. He, he's getting whatever he can get. This, too, is true of the infant Christian. He needs help. He's misguided in his pursuit of the Word of God. He longs for it. He loves it. He drinks of it. He needs it. But he gasps and he gulps and he makes mistakes and he misunderstands things and he needs assistance. He quickly and passionately devours the Word of God and while doing so, he inadvertently sucks up the vacuous ideas and philosophies of so many non-discerning, would-be spiritual mothers and fathers that the truth he has received, combined with the empty nonsense, makes for inner turmoil. So he needs to be burped. He needs to be relieved of all that which he thought was good. That which comes in has to go somewhere. And if it's not providing spiritual growth, it is at distinct odds with that which is true. This is one reason that solid Bible teaching is so necessary. You cannot do this on your own, nor can I. You need help. The new Christian needs help. He needs your help. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 are so clearly reflective of this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Right? He doesn't surround himself with those who are going to cultivate malice and deceit. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's drinking deeply, voraciously of truth. What's the result? Verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. I grew up in southwest Missouri, where there was a lot of bodies of water to choose from. We'd go canoeing, spend three days on Center Creek, spend the night in a cave, go fishing, swing from a rope tied to a tree. Not once did I ever experience any degree of concern about that tree falling into the creek because it was fed regularly, and I could tell by looking at it that it was strong. The Christian that is fed regularly like that is of such strength that others can depend upon him. Others can lean on him. He has the necessary knowledge, but he also has the necessary wisdom and humility that must accompany knowledge in order for a person to be helpful. He has grown spiritually as a result of this. Well, point number three, if you're to grow spiritually, you must cultivate your growth. You must cultivate your growth. 
Not only must you cast off your sin and crave God's word, but you must cultivate your growth. Peter goes on to say, so that, you're seeing these more and more, aren't you, now that we've emphasized it, there are a lot of so that's in the Bible. If then, then this. Do this so that this will be the result. Cast off your sin, crave God's word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Again, the let go, let God mentality says God did it all. Nothing more to be done. Let's just be happy and go bowling. (laughs) Peter, Peter calls us to remove the sinful barriers that destroy our appetite for truth and crave the word of God so that we will grow spiritually. As Steve Lawson has said, the pursuit of holiness is not a passive let go and let God but an aggressive, let's get going and get after it. You're involved. You have to be. So that you may grow in respect to your spiritual birth. You see how this is proven when a person is willing to be challenged over his conduct. He doesn't rigidly draw a line in the sand and say, no, I'm there. I'm good. I've got... All the spiritual growth necessary. You see a weakness in me, it's your problem. Because I've arrived. I'm a spiritual adult. So whatever you think you see couldn't possibly be true. But the person who is willingly challenged, who is willingly confronted, who desires what? He desires spiritual growth because he knows it's going to be stimulated by those who will speak truth to him. The one who is defensive when confronted is saying, I don't need spiritual growth. I'm grown. I'm good. I've arrived. He's a practical Wesleyan, believing that he no longer sins. What's the problem? He's either simply so full of himself and pride in his spiritual infancy, perhaps because of spiritual malnutrition, or he's never been born unto spiritual life. If he doesn't desire to be confronted with regard to his needed spiritual growth, he may not be alive. Maybe there's no baby to feed. He's still spiritually dead, and so there's no interest in spiritual food and resultant growth. Another parallel passage for us, very helpful, very important, and you'll see the similarities in Paul's heart with Peter's heart here. Philippians 2, Philippians 2, verse 12 Now, he's speaking to believers. I think you know this. He's speaking to believers who have, in his words, always obeyed. So this has nothing to do with the Catholic idea that you work for your salvation. You get saved because you work unto salvation. That's a misreading of the text. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So you're not just doing it for me. It's not just eye service or lip service, but you are known to be faithful. You're known to obey Christ, not just when I'm there, but the word is that you've been faithful in my absence. Work out, this is the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We talked about this idea of fearing God from our text a few weeks ago. It's a command of the scripture. The faithful believer will fear God. So he says, work it out with fear and trembling. This necessitates being shepherded by a man who fears and trembles at the word of God. Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 make that very clear. The humble man will tremble before the word of God. He takes it that seriously. He won't add to it. He won't take an idea that's not from the Bible and force it onto the Bible using what's commonly referred to and with some reverence as proof texting. He'll climb all over the Bible to find proof texts to prove his idea. That man does not tremble at the word of God. He uses it to ensure others that he is right and they are wrong. Paul goes on in verse 13 of Philippians chapter 2 to say, For it is God who is at work in you. Okay, now that I get. God's sovereign. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the one who actually produces the change. That's not hard to understand. I'm still bound to the flesh. 
I still have unredeemed humanity, so how can I actually be involved in this? So I get that, Paul, thank you. That's, that's not difficult. That part I think I kind of have my, my arms around, my mental arms around. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, God willed it and he works it out. Still with you, Paul, that's not hard to follow. But verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Um, Paul, I have a problem. Please don't take my privilege to complain about my boss away. Please, Paul, don't go there. You don't know him. Paul, you, you don't understand my mother. You don't understand my sister, my neighbor. If you're telling me to do all things without grumbling or disputing, now I have a problem. I understand that God is at will and at work in me. But now I'm really wrestling with the idea that I would work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I get the part that God does things. I'd rather let go and let God. But you're telling me that I must work out my salvation. I must work as a result of my salvation. I must fear and tremble. And I must do all things without grumbling or disputing? I have a dispute over that, Paul. But why? Peter and Paul are both very good about this, John as well, to help us understand the motive behind the command. He's not the parent who says, do it because I said so. So that, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is the heart of my heart as a shepherd, as a pastor, that what I would do would be for God's sake, but also for your sake, that I would not run in vain, that my work would not be done wastefully, but that what your life proves to be is proof that my efforts have been worth it. That you would appear as lights in the world. You want that. You want that. If you have experienced, and as Peter says later in our text, if you have enjoyed the greater joy of tasting the kindness of the Lord, especially if you were in a rigid, legalistic, pharisaical environment where you were constantly having to work for your salvation, constantly having to work to please God so that God wouldn't dismiss you, then you enjoy the reality that the kindness of the Lord is that he has accomplished that which is necessary for you to have this desire. He's caused you to be born again. He's given you new birth. And in that new birth, he has enabled you and quickened you to to do that which is necessary. And he has provided spiritual leadership so that it would be cultivated in you. I love Paul's words here. Holding fast to the word of life. Like that baby who voraciously sucks down his mother's milk because he loves it. He feels as though he can't get enough of it. Paul here speaks of the person who holds fast to the word of life. It's where he goes when things are good. It's where he rests when things are bad. Why? So that in the day of Christ, the return of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But this all completely depends upon one matter that Peter points out to us here. This completely depends upon whether or not you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Point number four. If you're to grow spiritually, you must check your spiritual condition. You must check your spiritual condition. Verse three, Peter gives us this contingent Clause. It's a clause of condition. He's, he's saying if, that's what that word if represents, a condition. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The question that Peter would have you and I ask each other is, have you been caused to be born again, his words, or are you leaning on a decision you made? Are you leaning on Christ's accomplishment on the cross And in the resurrection, are these the beauties of your soul? Are these the aspirations of your heart? Are these the object of your obsession? 
the law-abiding life, the sin-atoning death, and the sin-destroying resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are these the passions of your heart, or does this talk make you glassy-eyed? Here we go again. All about Jesus and His death and resurrection. So sad. Do you lean on your faithfulness or do you lean on the kindness of the Lord? When asked how you know you're a Christian, how do you respond? Do you respond with something you've done or what Christ has done? Is it about you flipping the switch, opening the Christmas gift, or is it about Christ accomplishing what He said He would certainly accomplish? How about this? What if someone accuses you of being phony, a hypocrite, guilty of malice, deceit, or slander? What if someone goes so far as to say, you know what, I don't even think you're a Christian? Do you rest in the kindness of the Lord? Or do you immediately begin to develop a mental resume of things you've accomplished? I've been in the church for 20 years, I taught a Sunday school class, I take people soup when they're sick. Uh, on and on and on. Do you rest in that? See, that's deceit. It's self-deceit, and when it comes out of your mouth, it's deceit of others. It's not helpful. You know, if you and I were to be confronted with, the, with that idea, you know, I'm not even sure you're a Christian, you know what we should say? Thank you for loving me enough to express concern over my conduct. I, I don't, I don't want to live in such a way that people think I don't love Christ. Would you tell me more about why you think that? See, if you rest in the kindness of Christ, you will be inclined to receive that. You'll long for that. And that might even break up some malicious rust or deceitful rust in your heart. You know, the sediment of those things that Peter has pointed out to us, deceit and hypocrisy. You see, for someone to come along and say that, regardless of their motive, let's not talk about that right now, we don't have time. Regardless of that person's motive, isn't it possible that that person could be used of the Lord despite his hard attitude to help you and, and or me see that there is malice, hypocrisy, deceit, envy, slander that might be, think of it this way, that might be preventing spiritual growth? How about that? And what if they're 99% wrong? That's not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world would be to be 100% wrong, I guess, but at least 1% right. If there's a kernel of truth in what that person brings to our attention, the response ought to be, you know what, I'm going to rest in the kindness of the Lord rather than my conduct, my track record. Where do you land, right? Where do you fall? Where do you rest? What pillow do you lay your head on at night when accusations have been brought against you? Colossians 3, verse 1. This takes us back to that passage I read to you from Colossians 3, verse 5 with regard to all things that Paul said to put to death. It's another condition clause. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So if you're resting, if you're enjoying, if you're embracing, if you're depending upon the kindness of Christ, it is because you've been resurrected. You didn't resurrect yourself. You thank Him that He resurrected you, and you'll spend a whole lot more time meditating on and thinking about your inadequacies than someone else's. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. It troubles me when I hear, especially a person in a position of spiritual leadership, that we need to stop influencing people to question their faith. No, we must influence people to question their faith. Well, doesn't that bring up turmoil and problems and worry? It shouldn't. What it should bring up is a reminder of the kindness of Christ. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Peter says, Brethren, be all the more diligent 
to make certain about his calling and election of you. Be diligent. Don't, don't play around with this. Well, you know, that rests in a decision I made. I made the choice. I chose Jesus. No, it doesn't. The Bible does not present that anywhere. When you confess Jesus Christ, you're confessing who he is and what he has done. You're resting in his kindness, not your accomplishment, not your wisdom and ability to choose him, but whether or not he has chosen you. Well, in an effort to give you some practical pegs upon which to to rest and lean and grow in this understanding, I wanted to give you a list of things that I think will be helpful. Uh, I hope the pegs that I've given you right out of the text are most helpful. Again, cast off your sin, crave God's word, cultivate your growth, and check your spiritual condition. But here are some helpful points that I I trust will uh, be beneficial to you. Number one, be fed well. Be fed well. In Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, We proclaim him admonishing every man. It means warning, instructing every man with a warning laced around it. Uh, Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. This should be written on the doorpost of every pastor's heart that he would long to proclaim Christ toward the goal of spiritual growth, maturity in the believer. Verse 29, Paul then explains how he goes about ensuring that this would take place in his life and his ministry. He says, For this purpose also I labor, striving, from the Greek term agonizomai, which means to agonize, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You need a teacher of God's word who strives diligently and labors passionately in the word of God and through whom God mightily works in you. You must be fed well. You need a shepherd who will care for you. Number two, purge the junk food. Purge the junk food. If you're listening to the heresies of Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen, you'll lose all interest in anything nutritional. But in addition, fill yourself with the more inoffensive, vacuous, shallow, ear-tickling cotton candy of other well-known teachers, and you'll have no room for what really feeds you and grows you. You see, it's easy to point out Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer. Their heresies are rampant. There's absolutely no restraint on either of those two people with regard to what goes. Anything goes with either of them. So there's no drawing the line. But those aren't the people a real shepherd would be most concerned about in your life because a little bit of discernment brings you to the place where you see through them. But it is those who trifle with the Word of God and get it fairly right some percentage of the time. So you need discernment that comes through sound teaching, comes through a devotion to the Word on your part, of course, but in time you must be willing to put off the weak watered-down, ear-tickling teachers who just make you feel good about you and don't stimulate any self-introspection that you would have accurate self-awareness. Purge the junk food. Do away with it. Number three, be discipled. Be discipled. This is a direct response to the command of our Savior to be involved in strategic relationships, men with men, women with women. The longer you resist discipleship, the more comfortable you will be in your sin and the more desensitized you will become to it. The more slanderous you will become toward those who repeatedly remind you of your need for discipleship until eventually something gives. Either you will say, enough, I've heard enough about this issue of discipleship, or you will say, okay, I see it in the scripture. I must comply with a full heart. At that point, you will become most uncomfortable. 
Because then you will say, I don't like this. It's exactly why I didn't want to do this. The person's telling me things about me I don't want to hear. And then it'll get worse because you'll go to that dear, trusted friend who always loves you and they agree with what that person said. And you say, I've known you all these years and you've never told me this? Yeah, because I'm scared of you is how that many times goes. In Matthew 28, verse 18, our Savior, who spilled his blood for us, for his Father's glory, said these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's a sense in which we should look at this and say, well, because Jesus is with us, we can be involved in discipleship. The person who is with Jesus, the person that Jesus is with, is the person who desires discipleship. We have a ministry called Ironmen. As I mentioned earlier, it's not the end-all, be-all of discipleship. But it is a basis. It's a foundation. It's a starting place. We are trying to be faithful to this passage with that structure. So men are discipling men, and men are growing, and those men are going into other venues, taking the, the curriculum that we've put together for that discipleship and discipling other men in our church in other venues. Just Tuesday night, had a rich conversation with a young man in our church who said, I would like to be involved in that young man's life and help him grow spiritually. And I said, here's a phone number. And this is natural. This is normal. This is not weird. This is not uncommon to the scripture. But this is how it works. And so we have a structure. We have a foundation. Iron Man. It's not the end-all, be-all, but that's where it starts. Our hope is that relationships would be born out of that. Good ones, powerful ones, strengthening ones discipleship-based ones. We have a, a women's ministry called WOW, Women of the Word, if you're wondering what WOW stands for, Women of the Word. 37 women met in this room, some on Wednesday, some on Saturday, being discipled as Christ discipled men. In Titus 2, women are called to disciple women, so women in our church disciple women, and those women disciple other women. A little over 40 of our men participated in a study on what it is to be a biblical leader, which is really focused on what it is to be above reproach this last week in our church. So this is how we are, I'm certain, imperfectly, but hopefully faithfully, being devoted to this command of the Scripture. We have a, a ministry called Young Theologians. Your bulletin says 6th through 12th grade, but really it's not that rigid. Anybody could come. But in that age category, we're doing all that we can, all that we know to do to teach sound doctrine. Timothy says, be, be careful about your life and your doctrine. What does that mean? Teach people the Bible. That's what that means. So that ministry is growing at a rapid pace, and more and more people are saying, hey, I want to be involved in that. Why? Because they want to disciple, and there are those who need to be discipled. I was in my office for a few hours here um, Wednesday night as those things were going on, and I couldn't help but walk away and say, things are a buzz here. The Lord is doing a relationship-establishing work in our church. This is not unusual to the New Testament church. This is what God has designed for us. He's given us a blueprint of it, and so my great joy is, is to uh, thank the Lord that the Lord is producing this in our lives, in our church. Some might say, you know, I tried that once or twice and I didn't like it. Said the spiritual toddler who has learned how to eat on his own and thinks he's an adult. I don't like to be told what to do. Well, let us know how not being told what to do works out for you. Or you say, I'm getting that from the internet. I listen to R.C. Sproul every week. I get good preaching. I read good books. I'm getting that from another church. You know, I come here on Sunday mornings. I got Tuesday nights over there or whatever. Or from a parachurch women's Bible study. It's not God's design. It's not the church. And I would ask, how do those things? 
contribute to your effectiveness in the local body of which you are a member? How does that help strengthen the local body to which Christ has called body members? Scan the New Testament, and you will not find very often a mention of a devotion to the universal church, but to a local church. So we rest in that premise. See, all of those things, internet preaching and all that, books, etc., they will only result in diminishing your spiritual growth as well as others for whom you are responsible if you are not becoming useful and effective in helping others to do so in your local body. But this violates the consumer mindset that says, I came here to check it out. I came here just to see how they do things, see if I like it or not. And the person who you know, stays for a month or two or three or four and comes with an agenda... You know, are they going to support me and my agenda? Am I going to get what I want? But never involves himself or herself in discipleship. It won't be a happy setting. It'll only be difficult. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You see, you need someone, and so do I. You need someone, several someones actually, to point out your malice, your deceit, your hypocrisy, your envy, and your slander. Unless, of course, you don't mind soaking in those things. If you're fine with those mindsets, then you won't feel the need for discipleship. You need it. The Scripture commands it. And we are doing what we can to provide it. You need someone who will speak the truth in love to you who will give you what you need, who will tell you the truth about your life, even if it's done imperfectly. You need people like that. You need the body of Christ to provide that. Well, number four, number four, purge the junk food-based relationships. Purge the junk food-based relationships. You know, Proverbs 27, verse 7 says, a sated man, it's a word we don't use, but satiated or satisfied, a full man loathes honey. You know what that's like. You've had a great meal. You've been fed well. You don't want to add anything to that. But to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Friends, we live in a spiritually deprived region of the country where people are willing to drink down almost anything regardless of whether or not it's bitter and they think it's sweet because it's going into a stomach that's been famished for a long, long time. He who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Number five, serve the body. There is no such thing as a churchless Christianity. You will not find it in the Scripture. And Paul gives us a, a very condensed expression of that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Where he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. It's this beautiful metaphor that we, we love. We, we can recognize that the body needs the body through that metaphor. And then Ephesians 4, starting with verse 15, Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. See that? Spiritual growth takes place to some degree by those who are willing to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. You see that? The body needs every body part. The body needs the assistance, the involvement, the participation, the faithfulness of every body part together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, 
causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You say, my life is very difficult right now. I really can't involve myself in the church the way you seem to expect people to be involved in the church. I totally understand that. There will be chapters and seasons in potentially everyone's life where it's not possible. I think of this, the single mom who's trying to do everything she possibly can to support her family, and she's fighting against all odds. And so are we going to say to her, if you're not here for everything we do, you're not faithful? I've mentioned to you before this gal in our church in Lancaster. She's got four sons, the oldest of which is severely mentally retarded. But I realized, I began to realize she was only with us about every other Sunday. Well, clearly she's got a very difficult life. So what does the body do? As you know, when there is a member who is experiencing difficult circumstances, the body compensates for itself. The body must do that. That's why we have discipleship, but that's also why we have family groups. And in our family groups, that's where those needs are discovered and addressed and explored in a way that would hopefully be helpful to, to everyone who would be involved. What will you and I do? I hope that we will collectively and faithfully be devoted to the pure milk of the Word of God, that we ourselves would start with self. You can't really change anybody else, but you can cast off your sin. You can be faithfully involved in your own sanctification by drinking down the Word of God, by cultivating your own spiritual growth, and by checking your spiritual condition. If we'll do that, the Lord will use us. It's my great joy to say that I believe He is. But what will you and I do with this text of Scripture today? Will we take it to heart and believe wholeheartedly that the Lord would have us do a spiritual inventory and root out those things that prevent spiritual growth and focus on that which will produce spiritual growth, having cultivated a craving for it? We will if we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Father, thank you for the rich joy to worship you with these dear, dear people. You have given me a blessing that I could never have imagined you would. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the work that he has done. We thank you for what he has accomplished. And so, Lord, we ask all these things for your glory. Amen.